Let's pray together, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the treasures of your holy word. And as we come to the end of this great gospel of Luke that you breathed forth 2,000 years ago, may we receive the truth of his final three verses with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24. It's actually the final four verses. Sorry. I minored in mathematics when I was an undergrad. Just <laughs> Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. Luke 24, 50 through 53. This is God's word. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. About 15 years ago, I had a friend who was in seminary and he was taking systematic theology uh, before I took it. And one of the papers that he wrote, he told me he wrote a paper on the ascension of Christ. And normally when I had seminary friends that told me they wrote a paper on this or a paper on that, I would ask them, well, can I, can I see the paper? I, w- I would love to, to see, you know, benefit from your work. But I didn't ask him to see it because I thought, what in the world could you say about that? The ascension of Christ, okay? Game's over. He does the cross. He rises from the dead. He went back to heaven. That's the end of it, right? You, you, how do you squeeze eight to ten pages, double space with 12 footnotes out of that? Well, there's a lot more to it, as I was to discover In 1884, a Scottish theologian named William Symington wrote a book called Messiah the Prince. And in that book, he wrote this, quote, The scriptures, it may be remarked, represent civil government as at once an ordinance of God and an ordinance of man. And as far as it is the right of the people to fix the constitution, to elect the rulers, and to revise and amend the system under which they live, civil government may be regarded as an ordinance of man. But it is not to be inferred from this that it depends solely on the will of man whether civil institution should be set up in a country at all, that civil society originates wholly in voluntary compact, or that whatever is sanctioned by the public will is necessarily right and consequently obligatory. The most frightful results would follow from admitting such an absolute sovereignty of the people as this. There are too many instances on record of the great body of people having gone egregiously astray ever to permit us to give our unqualified assent to such a principle. Indeed, it is manifestly absurd to suppose that the majority of a nation should be free from the moral control of the law and authority of God in the formation of their civil institutions. This were to ascribe to an aggregate body composed of moral subjects who are individually responsible, a proud, irreligious, irresponsible independence of the will of the great moral governor himself, a supposition so monstrous that however much overlooked in practice, everyone must shrink from it in theory, end quote. So William Symington, 139 years ago, 
said that the idea that nations of people, what they desire is the source of law and that rulers and people are not answerable and accountable to Jesus Christ is an idea that is so monstrous, so absurd, so unspeakably wicked that everyone must shrink from it in horror. The notion that mankind in general and rulers of the nations of the world in particular could ever see themselves as not accountable to the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, is unspeakably evil, he said. Think about what he's saying there in that quote from nearly a century and a half ago. He's basically saying this, thank God nobody would ever practice that. I mean, the idea that laws come from the will of the population of a country is so monstrous, so wicked, so evil. Thank God nobody would ever actually try it. If only he could have seen the 20th century and all the moral chaos and the political murders and the bloodshed and the war and the government-created famines and mass death that was produced and continues to be produced by that very kind of thinking today. If only he could have seen the rise of communism and Nazism and socialism. The results have indeed been monstrous. Wouldn't you agree with him? The idea that, they agree, the, the idea that whatever is sanctioned by the public will is necessarily right and consequently obligatory was for William Symington something so manifestly wrong, so devilishly evil. Surely nobody would ever think that that's true. Well, we're watching the results of it today, aren't we? Please remember to pray. I would encourage you. Please remember to pray every day that God would bring revival to this land of ours. That God would convict people of sin. That God would raise up godly rulers. Whatever else you've got going on. And I know all of us have got many things going on, many burdens, many difficult and hard places in our lives in God's providence that we deal with day in and day out, please remember to pray for the salvation of the world and to pray that our Lord's enemies will be made his footstool. Please remember to pray as Jesus told us to pray. Every time we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, pray for the things on our church's prayer list. We are a needy people and God wants to hear us share our burdens with him and ask for relief from those things. But remember to pray on a larger scale too. Pray for the kingdom of God to come in this world. Pray for God's will to be done on earth. Theologians, pastors, churchmen, and Christians in the past looked at the idea that we the people are the source of right and wrong. We, the people, are the source of economic policies. We're the source of morality. They looked at that as so manifestly wrong that one could only recoil at the idea of ever practicing that. The tragically sad truth today is, now, today, the idea that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and that he's the source of right and wrong, that is seen as monstrous. The truth is seen as, as evil. Psalm 2.10, I read it in the call to worship. Psalm 2.10, listen. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges. Supreme Court, judges. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. 
Notice the word of God singles out kings and judges. They're singled out by the Holy Spirit as being the ones who primarily need to do homage to Christ, which is an expression that means pay respect to. Every king of the earth, our local magistrates, our governor of the state, the president of the United States, they need to bow to and do homage to the Son of God, King Jesus. Why are kings and judges singled out by Scripture? Because what they, in particular, think is right and wrong will have a dramatic impact upon all the people of the world. What kings think is right and wrong, what judges think is right and wrong, that will determine whether our land is a place of justice or injustice. They will determine whether God's right to rule will be seen or not. God rebuked Israel over and over again. You can't read Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and not see that God brought rebukes against the people of Israel, against their kings, against their judges for being unjust. God brought rebukes against the Ethiopians and against the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the people of Nineveh, the surrounding nations for being unjust as well. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. The prophetic books are filled with rebukes against that very thing. Who is the sovereign over all the nations of the world and over everything in the world, over every institution, every discipline, every art form, etc.? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is the source of right and wrong? Jesus Christ and his law word and scripture. Kings and judges must take heed to the word of God and to the lordship of their creator, King Jesus This morning, we look at the final passage of Luke's gospel. Jesus's ascension is a much neglected and much needed doctrine today. The New Testament gives us a very fully developed doctrine of the ascension. Now, as I said at the beginning of my introduction, you might wonder, what are you talking about? What is the doctrine of the ascension of Christ? Jesus does the cross, he dies, he's buried, he rises from the dead, and then he goes back to heaven, right? That's all there is, right? Well, there's much more to it, as you're going to see. Let's look at those verses again, verses 50 through 53, the last section of Luke's gospel. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So this is where Luke ends his gospel. But in the book of Acts, remember, Luke and Acts were originally one large book. Luke begins the book of Acts with a description of the ascension of Christ. Listen to it, Acts 1.9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What is the doctrine of the ascension of Christ? What is its significance to us? Why does Luke begin his glorious account of the conquest of the gospel into the entire Roman world? Why does he begin it with the ascension of Christ in more detail there? The next event after the Great Commission is fulfilled will be Jesus's return to the earth. Once the Great Commission is over, once God has gathered in all his people, once the knowledge of God covers the world, Jesus will come back. But what's Jesus doing now? What does the ascension of Christ mean for us? What does it mean to the kings and judges of the world? What does it mean to the church today? 
Listen to the word of God. I'm going to read a number of passages to you. Ephesians 1.19. You're welcome to turn to these. These are actually in order. If you want to turn to Ephesians 1, verse 19. In your real Bibles or gadgets or whatever. You used to be able to hear the wisping of the pages. And now it's, you don't hear anything. <laughs> Ephesians 1.19. Paul wrote, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and, listen, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Dear congregation, listen. Very often people think all the stuff about Jesus reigning and the knowledge of God covering the earth, that's all about heaven. That's about heaven. That's about the eternal state. But what does the text say? Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He is exalted far above all dominion and power and every name that is named. All earthly powers are under the lordship of King Jesus. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. The ascension of Christ, very simply stated, means Christ Rules over everything. He rules over everything. And that's why Psalm 2 says what it says. Every king of the earth, whether they're a communist dictator or the president of the U.S., they must do homage to Jesus. Jesus Christ rules over all. He rules over the demonic forces, the principalities and powers, and over every name that is named, all rulers and powerful people. You know, I was asked by a member of our church this past week, is there any way that Satan could ever have any authority over us? I said, no. D- demons, the principalities and powers have no authority at all in the life of a Christian. He has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 5. Look over one more chapter there. Ephesians 2, verse 5. <coughs> Pardon me. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the Christian people, those that really know him, we also are raised with Christ and are seated in the heavenly places with him, even at God's right hand. So Jesus did not leave the world because it was some kind of a timeout until he can rapture the church off the earth and then go back to dealing with national Israel. That's not what happened at all. Jesus is not on the sidelines. He is very actively engaged in building his church and extending his kingdom in the world and putting his enemies under his feet. Look at Ephesians 4, 8. Let's turn over a couple chapters. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Here you have a direct reference to the ascension of Christ. Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended, that's the incarnation, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he would fill all things. As Paul thinks about the church and as he writes about it under the divine inspiration of the Spirit, he relates the church directly to the ascension of Christ. From that place of ascended glory, 
Jesus is the one who gives pastors and teachers and evangelists to churches. They're gifts of God. They're gifts of the Lord Jesus to his church. Now turn over another book, Ephesians, Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, verse 8. Here you have one of the clearest statements of what the ascension of Christ back to heaven, what it means for us. Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen, verse 9. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who descended into the earth in great humility at his first coming, being born in a low condition, there in a stable, but being being laid in in a manger, being made under the law in humility, humiliation, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the death on the cross, being buried, continuing under the power of death for a time. Now he's been highly exalted to such an extent that every knee must bow to him. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the world, the judges of the earth, must bow to the Lord and confess that he is Lord. He was so humiliated before, but now he is exalted on high to the most glorious position in the whole universe. What's the promise? What's the expectation? Everyone must acknowledge him as Lord. Every king, every judge of the world needs to bow their knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. Just a couple more. I'll just read these two. Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22, last one. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So what's been subjected to Christ in his ascension? Everything. Angels, authorities, and powers. That's everything in the world. Every military army in the world, every force in the world has been subjected to Jesus. Do you see the significance of his ascension? Praise God for the incarnation. Praise God for the life of perfect obedience that Jesus achieved for us and entering into that broken covenant of works that Adam failed to achieve. Praise God for the cross that satisfies God's justice against us. Praise God for his burial for those three days. Praise God for his resurrection. And praise God for his ascension and his exaltation over the world and over every name that is named. He is exalted over all demonic forces and hosts and over all earthly powers, judges, kings, armies, and every name that is named, the scripture says. No matter how much money or political power anyone ever has, Jesus is exalted higher than them. He's ascended, and from that place, he rules over all and is subjecting the world, subjugating the world through the gospel now. And his church is going to have to agonize to see it happen. You know, that's one of the Greek verbs used in the New Testament. The church has to agonizomai. I remember learning that in, in seminary, the word agonizomai. That is where we get the word agonize. Church life is very hard. When you read, the, read through the New Testament, what do you have to deal with? All kinds of stuff. Sin, the rise of false teachers, and heresy, and schisms, and everything else. It's, it's painful stuff. But that's the way that God brings his kingdom to bear on the world. 
Hebrews 1.3, another great passage. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Listen, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When the high priest went into the temple and made that blood offering, their work was not done until they sat down. Once they sat down, their work was done and they were finished. Hebrews 2, 8, and 9. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels and so forth. Do you hear what he said? We do not yet see all things subjected to him. But what's implied from that? One day we will. One day we will. How will we as the church know? How will we know when the Great Commission is finished? When all things are subjected to him. When all things are subjected to him. Are all things subjected to him now? Clearly not. What's the church's role in bringing this about? We preach Christ and him crucified. And we teach everything in scripture from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the end. Our role Our role in the ascended Christ taking dominion over every institution and everything in the world. Our role is this. Just be faithful. Don't deviate from my word. Just trust and obey. Just trust and obey me. God will do the rest. God is responsible for the results. God is the one who will cause his word to accomplish what he sends it forth to accomplish. We are simply the messengers. We are not. We are not called to be pragmatic. We are not allowed to edit the gospel. We're not allowed to edit the scriptures. We are heralds and messengers of someone else's message. That message needs to be made clear and understandable and accurate to the word of God. That's the church's job. You know, most of you are aware I, I drove down to Orlando uh, last Sunday evening and the Jay Gresham Machen Conference, their winter conference there at Reformation Bible College happened. It was about seven hours and, and one day there on, on Monday. It was a lot, of, a lot of lectures. But the reason they picked him is it's been 100 years. It has been 100 years since the publication of Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. And I want to tell you, I cannot think of a single book that is more relevant to the push of progressivism pragmatism and the new liberalism that is quickly destroying what's left of conservative Christianity in America today. You want to understand what happened, what's happening right now? You need to understand what happened hundred years ago. What Machen was facing in 1923 is exactly what we are facing today. Exact same stuff, same arguments, the push to be pragmatic for the sake of church size, as opposed to being faithful was exactly what the liberals and the unbelievers and the apostates and the heretics in the church were pushing over a century ago. What does pragmatic mean? It means doing things in such a way as to maximize the results. Being pragmatic is great when it comes to things like winning world wars. I'm thankful America has been pragmatic in those areas, but when it comes to theology, when it comes to churchmanship, evangelism, pragmatism is a deadly disease. And it's a perpetual temptation. The liberal, unbelieving preacher, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Y'all ever heard of Harry Emerson Fosdick? One of Machen's primary opponents. Fosdick was a liberal. hundred years ago, he wrote a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? 
Over 100,000 copies of that sermon were published by John D. Rockefeller and sent to every Bible college and seminary professor and pastor in America. Fosdick said this, quote, in that sermon. I actually did a whole podcast and read the whole sermon and tried not to lose my lunch. He said, we must be able to think our modern life clear through in Christian terms. And to do that, we also must be able to think our Christian life clear through in modern terms. End quote. Why did Fosdick propose that? Why do we need to rethink the entire Christian faith in modern terms? Why? Pragmatic reasons. The idea that the liberals were pushing was, look, nobody can believe in heaven or hell anymore. Okay? We go to the dentist now. Okay? So we have technology now. We go to stuff. We have products and technology and electricity. And we go to doctors and they can fix this and fix that. Nobody can believe in heaven or hell or divine revelation anymore. And the modern advances in science and technology, they've made this old three-tiered universe and supernatural Christian faith, they've made it irrelevant to the modern mind. And if we don't accommodate modernity, the church is going to disappear from the earth. That's what they said. And therefore, for pragmatic reasons, for reasons of the church surviving, keeping our numbers up, keeping people coming, we've got to rethink the Christian faith clear through in modern terms. In other words, if we want Christianity to be relevant to our age and time, we've got to allow the unbelief and anti-supernatural biases of modernism, we've got to allow those things to retool and rework the entire superstructure of the biblical Christian faith. And thank God, people like Jay Gresson Machen saw right through that. Remember many years ago, when I was first introduced to R.C. Sproul and was listening to everything I could get my hands on by the guy. I had, I had a Walkman and a tape. tape used to listen to tapes. And when I was uh, walking around or driving, I listened to stuff, listened to tapes in my car. And R.C. Sproul did a lecture on liberalism. And he called liberalism a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he said, as only he could say it, let me, let me summarize liberalism for you in one word. And he walked over to the chalkboard and wrote the word in huge letters, unbelief, and underlined it. What is liberalism? What is progressivism? It's that. It's unbelief. What Fosdick, the liberal, and what Machen, the Christian, saw is somebody's dead wrong here. These two things are different religions. Fosdick and the modernists and the liberals, what they proposed was nothing short of a wholesale abandonment of the entire Christian faith, all of its doctrines. And that's why Machen wrote the book, Christianity and Liberalism. And his point in that title was that liberalism is not just a different flavor of Christianity. It's not a different denomination of Christianity. It's another religion altogether and a false one at that. Liberalism is unbelief. Machen saw clearly that the idea of being pragmatic in our theology was deadly to Christianity. He wrote in his book, What is Faith? He wrote another little book called What is Faith? I highly recommend it. It's actually free on the internet. If you Google J. Gresson Machen, What is Faith? It pops right up in PDF. He said this, quote, listen, pragmatism should be avoided by the Christian with all the energies of his soul. As indeed, it should be avoided by everyone who will not acquiesce in the present lamentable intellectual decline which pragmatism has brought about. The, listen to this. You gotta, I love the way this, this man thought. He was so biblical on the money. He says, 
The facts of the Christian religion remain facts, no matter whether we cherish them or not. They are facts for God. They are facts for both angels and for demons. They are facts now, and they will remain facts beyond the end of time. End quote. Now, this relates directly to the ascension of Jesus and his rule and reign over the whole world. In this, in the way he rules over the world, the church is his hands and his feet. The church is Jesus' hands and feet. And we have to proclaim and stand for the truth. And we can't compromise it. It's the truth that sets men free. It's the truth by which the church is sanctified and grows in grace. It is the truth, the unvarnished, uncompromised, non-pragmatic truth of Holy Scripture by which Jesus will subdue his enemies and bring them under his feet and rule over them. The gospel is ours to proclaim, not to edit. The Bible is ours to preach in its entirety, not to shave off the hard sayings, not to get rid of the difficult parts which our modern world finds so offensive. Jesus has ascended on high and sits enthroned over every earthly power, over every king, every judge of the world, and over his church right now. And how dare anyone think they have the right to think the Christian life through in modern terms? Forget kings and judges for a moment. The church is failing to do homage to King Jesus. Dr. Robert Godfrey. Robert Godfrey is one of, the, one of the best theologians and one of the clearest defenders of the biblical gospel in our time. Robert Godfrey said this. If the church does not build hospitals, people will build hospitals. If the church does not feed the poor, people will still feed the poor. If the church does not engage in charity, people will engage in charity. But if the church does not preach the one true gospel, nobody will. Now, should we care about hospitals and helping the poor? Of course we should. God forbid we be indifferent to things like that. If the church does not uphold the law of God, however, nobody will. If the church doesn't bring the lordship of Christ to every scientific discipline and art form that exists, nobody will do that. The irony is, of course, it is only when the church does preach the true gospel that those facets of society are transformed and done. If the church will not be faithful to the truth of God as revealed in Holy Scripture, nobody will. Nobody will be. It's only when the church has seen itself primarily as a social force. The social gospel. That was another part of the liberal agenda. We, we don't care. I mean, who cares about justification and sanctification, all these technical theological terms. We've got to get out there and help the poor. We've got to get out there and, 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 and feed the hungry. We've got to do this and we've got to do that. Not realizing that without the gospel, you can't transform society. The movements in church history that have had the biggest impact on helping the poor, building hospitals, and transforming society were those movements that were faithful to the text of Scripture. Because they aimed at heaven. They aimed at heaven, and earth was thrown in. If our eyes are fixed on earth, we'll gain neither heaven nor earth. And dear congregation, that's why we emphasize biblical creationism the way we do with passion, without compromise. That's why. That's why we emphasize the gospel, with passion, without compromise, refuting all error, and committing a sin against what I think has become the 11th commandment, you shall not ever name names from a pulpit. That's why we call people out by name. You ever read the New Testament? What does Paul do? Hymenaeus and Alexander, watch out for them. They're bad guys. 
Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive our words and has resisted us. They called people out by name. How could we think that we're not supposed to do that? We have to do that. And we're supposed to equip people to be faithful evangelists. If we don't get the message straight, dear congregation, if we don't have the message of the Bible straight, what's the point of spreading it? Hebrews 9.24, listen. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 10.12, But he, having, once, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. We want to see the enemies of God made the footstool for Christ's feet. We've got to be faithful to the truth. And preaching it, teaching it, and living it. Living the law of God. Living in gratitude to him. In obedience to his law. So what is Jesus doing right now as we speak? He's reigning from heaven. Having ascended on high as king of the universe, he is reigning there. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So Jesus right now is reigning. He is reigning until all of his enemies are made his footstool. And they've not been made his footstool yet. And so there's a lot of work left to be done. There's a lot of evangelism left to be done and discipleship to be done. There's a lot of sin we need to fight against in our own personal lives and our hearts. Jesus' ascension is not simply his physical removal from the world until his return. He is now reigning as the king. And his truth marches forward in the world through the work of his church. I want to tell you something. Please listen to me. That kingdom of God, it advances through our Sabbath day worship. It advances through how heartily we worship him. Our singing and praising God ought to be heartfelt and passionate. You know, at the Reformation Bible College down there, uh, my daughter's in the choir and they sing inside of St. Andrew's Chapel. Anyone here ever been inside St. Andrew's Chapel? It's like stepping into something from medieval Europe or something. It's just glorious. And, and the sound in that room that the choir was making was just amazing. And eventually they went outside because the weather was so nice and they were singing outside. You may have seen, I posted a little video of them singing out there. It just sounded great. And I got to meet the choir director. The choir director, his full-time job is to play the organ in that church. It's his full-time job. And they make sure he's got plenty of time to practice. And he says to me, do you want me to play the organ for you? <laughs> I said, is the Pope Catholic? Um, I said, yeah. I said, I would love to hear you play that thing. So he goes in there and shows me pulling like, all these knobs. And there's three levels of, of keys on there. And he's, he played a whole Bach fugue with his feet on the pedals down there, just dancing around. And it was just glorious to hear. And I thought, I can't imagine the sacrifice of praise, what it sounds like in that room with, what, a thousand people that could fit in that room with the, the sounds coming from the back and the front and the sides and the pipes. It was just glorious. God's kingdom advances through that. The world looks at that and says, that's foolish. They stand there and listen to a guy talk who reads from this dusty old book and they, they eat bread and drink wine and they pour water on people. That's foolishness. And God says, I'm saving people. And I'm advancing my kingdom. Our sacrifice of praise is one of the ways he does that. It's one of the ways that he expands his rule in the world. Our singing 
Is not God worthy that we should sing to him with our whole heart? That he is worthy of a beautiful sacrifice of praise. That's why the Psalms say, play skillfully. Is not God worthy that we worship him with our voices together as blood-bought and redeemed people? Of course he is. We honor our Lord's kingly ascension and his kingly authority by being faithful to the truth, to his word. By faithfully preaching and teaching and defending the true gospel. By faithfully worshiping God according to his holy word. By following the regulative principle of worship, which means that we do only what he commands us to do, not what we think will attract more people. And when the church becomes pragmatic instead of faithful, when it compromises the truth instead of being faithful to the truth, The kingly ascension of Christ is dishonored. And he's grieved. This is one of the main points of application we've got to see in this final passage of Luke's gospel. It's not that Jesus has simply exited stage left. Jesus ascends to the right hand of his father on high and he takes his seat. And from there, he builds his church through his ministry of the gospel and of the sacraments. Jesus builds his church through that church's faithfulness to the truth. What a sad and tragic thing it is that the whole time the church is in this world, as that great old hymn says, the church by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of mourning shall be the morn song. Paul even wrote to the church at Corinth, of course there must be heresies among you. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, that they which are approved may be made manifest. Really? There must be heresies, Paul said. There must be heresies among you, among the people of God. Yes, why? So that those who are approved by God will be made clear. And how do you know who's approved by God? It's very easy, dear congregation. Whoever wants to be faithful to the word of God, they're approved of God and those who don't, aren't. It's not rocket science. There's nothing hard here. You don't need a PhD to understand that. The church of Jesus Christ, for all of its faults, all of its problems, I want to tell you something. It's glorious. Being part of a church is glorious. And the church is glorious. You see God's glory in our love for each other. You see God's glory in our willingness to overlook sin, in our willingness to weep together, to rejoice together. R.B. Kuyper wrote a wonderful little book called The Glorious Body of Christ. And Kuyper... I think that was published in 1967. He said this, let it be said emphatically, the church is where the truth is. Sound doctrine always has been, is today, and ever will be the foremost mark of the true church. But who dares to assert that there is today in the churches a rising tide of interest in doctrine? By and large, people don't go to church to learn about God from his infallible word, but rather to be tranquilized. And that the glory of God is both beginning, the beginning and the end of common worship does not seem to occur to most. The fact remains that the Christian church of our day finds itself in a sorry plight. It seems despicable rather than glorious. However, that fact renders insistence on its essential glory all the more necessary. The world has ever opposed the church and always will. The struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is not only perennial, but perpetual. We will never get to a place as a church where we don't have problems anymore. It's not going to happen this side of eternity. But I would encourage you, love your church. 
It's one of the most practical ways that we honor the ascended Christ. The Bible teaches Jesus didn't postpone the kingdom when he left this world. He didn't leave to escape his reign or to postpone it to a future millennium. Jesus ascended in order to enter into his reign. Remember what he told Caiaphas at his trial? You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power. The ascension is the public inauguration of his glorious kingdom, and the church is his glorious body. Do you see why, dear congregation, so much more than our peace and our personal tranquility is at stake when we sin? When we sin, we blaspheme the King of Kings. The king of the whole universe. Remember David, when David committed adultery and murder? Remember asking a Sunday school class years ago, why did God take the life of that child? Why did God take the life of that child? And people immediately said, because he committed murder and adultery. That's not why God took the life of that child. 2 Samuel 12, 14, Nathan told David, Because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, you made me look bad. And that's far more important than killing someone. That's far more important than adultery. That's really what's at stake. We don't want to offend our ascended king. Don't look at those verses. At the last part of Luke's gospel, it's taken us... Three years, more than three years to get through Luke. And don't look at those last four verses and and think, okay, cool, Jesus went back to heaven, that's it. It's a lot more. The New Testament gives us a fully developed doctrine of Christ's ascension and kingly coronation and enthronement in heaven. Every king, every judge of the world must bow to him, kiss him, do homage to him, and submit to him or else suffer his wrath, it says in Psalm 2. The biblical doctrine of the ascension. Once upon a time in this nation and after the Reformation happened in Europe, it used to be understood. It used to be preached with a lot more fervor than it is now. But I want to read to you just a few stanzas from Matthew Bridges, great hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. This was written in 1851. He understood the ascension of Christ when he wrote this hymn. Listen, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthems drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above and beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends their burning eye at mysteries so bright. Now listen to this. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet, fair flowers of glory now extend their fragrance ever sweet. And then last one, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Jesus didn't simply finish and go home. He reigns from heaven until all his enemies are made his footstool. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord and God, we've been walking through this Gospel of Luke for a long time. And I can say with every bit of sincerity, I don't feel like I even scratched the surface of what's here, of the treasures that you've given to us. May our hearts rejoice in our ascended victorious Lord. And may we seek to honor his kingship and his authority over everything our church does, over everything we do in all our relationships, in our vocations and callings, our jobs, and over the future. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.